Welcome to the Generations United Church podcast, a podcast for Gen U by Gen U, where we discuss the Bible, church, culture, and all things relevant to a life following Jesus. My name is Luke Williams. I am the pastor of our young adults and our online ministries. Today, we have the author and writer, Sarah Billups. We are continuing our Beyond the Page series from our previous small group semester. Sarah is a Seattle-based faith and culture writer. She's written for publications like the New York Times, Christianity Today. She has a, a new book coming out in January of 2023 called Orphaned Believers. The conversation that Sarah and Pastor Tommy Brown have, I think is a really, really important one. One that really touches on where we are as a church today, where people are today. Are they staying engaged with us? Are they not staying engaged with us? What are the things that are pushing us apart? What are the things that are bringing us together? I would encourage you to listen to this interview with an open mind and an open heart. And if you're listening to this and you are new to GenU, head on over to GenUChurch.com. Find out about all of our events, our service times, really just all the information about the life of our church. So, Without further delay, let's get into it today. Sarah, what time in the world is it where you are? Uh, it is four thirty-three here, so we're a couple hours a couple hours different. Okay, so they they kind of know what we're doing. I don't think that this group needs much of an intro on what's going on and uh, what we're up to. Uh, so these are conversations with authors about faith and culture, as you know. And I think this one is going to be heavy on, well, it'll be heavy on both parts. The first two have been lots of faith conversations, I think. I think with Chase, we talked a little bit about what's going on in culture related to masculinity and those types of things. But um, Sarah uh, has has thought and written extensively about where the church is right now. Like what's what's going on? Um, And so she's out on the West Coast, so has a completely different view of America than what we have. Um, So Sarah, you're a mom, you're a wife, you're a writer. Tell us about yourself, what you do, who you are, what you love, all of that. (laughs) Yeah. um, Well, thanks for having me, Tommy. It's really fun to do this. And um, I'm so happy to spend this time with you. you all. It's nice to meet you. you. Um, Yeah. I have lived in Seattle for 17 years years this summer, but grew up in Indiana, so from the Midwest, Fort Wayne, Indiana, and uh, met my husband at Taylor University, which is a Christian liberal arts college in the Midwest, and then uh, decided we were really interested in in trying to see what a different part of the country is like. He's from Baltimore, and I grew up in the Midwest, so we moved out with some friends and tried living in intentional community in the early to mid-2000s, and uh, have been here ever since. And so I have two kids, Asher's 12 and Sabine's 9, so we're navigating the wild world of sixth grade right now, which has been, <laughs> which wow. has been an adventure. Yes. And uh, I attend, I've attended the same church uh, the whole way through here, but I, I grew up in a non-denominational church in Indiana, went to a um, Christian Missionary Alliance church uh, after college, and then have been at a PCA church here. And we've just recently, uh, actually as a congregation, voted to become a part of the Anglican Church of North America. So I have had a little bit of, of all denominational experiences, or many. 
Okay. So, my husband was great Southern Baptist. So we've been all over. And has one of the better beards of any person that I know. I have beard envy of uh, your husband. It's a great beard. Well, it's, it's like ultra gray. And he had a big, he liked to read like Russian literature in college. So he's had like a Dostoevsky, you know, dream of being like a Russian author or something. Well, he's Although, close. <laughs> He's on his way. <laughs> um, I wanted to ask you, intentional living community. What, yeah. what is an intentional living? So I think intentional living community around here, it's people who live in RVs together, right? Like they're doing a thing and what's it out in your neck of the woods? What is that? Yeah. Oh, wow. Well, this was in the, the early 2000s. Shane Claiborne, the writer, yeah. was talking about new monasticism. It was a part of the missional church movement. So with intentional community, it was very much a experiment of the time uh, where we all moved out and there were four or five couples. Um, no one had kids. We rented a couple of big old houses and tried living together, having a house church, um, seeing if we could plant some kind of project in Seattle, being a retreat center or something else together. And it lasted for two years. I mean, Tommy, there's different ways to tell the story. Some of it's practical. Seattle's a pretty expensive place to be, so we couldn't afford to buy a building or property. But it's also true that in those years, quite quickly, we thought we could move to Seattle and kind of plant a church or do something together um, that was missional. But it became clear that we were kind of over overcome by the city. Like the city kind of assimilated us more than we assimilated the city in those years. And so... Um, folks use terms like deconstruction now to talk about changing faith. But I think in the 2000s, we used to talk about spiritual, but not religious. It was kind of different, different yeah. language. But many of our friends either left church or their faith changed in a way that became difficult or new. And Drew and I just kind of felt like we were sort of staying the same or, or treading water. We went through a really difficult decade where our faith wasn't flourishing. And honestly, I kind of stopped talking about it. So I had a Sunday, a Sunday life and then a rest of the work week life for about a decade. Wow. Talk to us about, and we're, we're just jumping in. Okay. So yeah. I had a direction I thought I was going to go and I'm going to go a completely different direction. It's going to be fun and we'll see what happens. It could be terrible. Um, deconstruction. That's, that's a word we're starting to hear more and more. Uh, help us, help us with that. What, what does that mean uh, to you? What are you seeing related to that? Yeah. I mean, isn't that, I think words are fascinating and I think that word has power. It's so charged. I think that word's political. I think it's personal. Um, and I think it means something a little bit different to everybody who uses it. And so if somebody would say I'm a Christian or I was raised evangelical, but I'm deconstructing, that may mean that that person identifies as ex-evangelical or has decided to leave church altogether. It may mean that they're just exploring uh, where they where they are and how they relate to Jesus in comparison to the broader American church. Um, it feels like it's a hard term to pin down, um, but it does seem like it's also there's also a power to how that word um, has momentum, and there's a sort of feeling that. Um, there's almost like a pressure sometimes to sort of say, at least in my neck of the woods, that I've deconstructed or I'm deconstructing. Mm -hmm. um, but now it's to the point where I think folks are talking about reconstructing. We can't deconstruct forever. We can't kind of peel away layers of our faith forever. And so where are we reconstructing towards? Um, I, don't, I don't personally use that language. Part of it's because I'm a writer. And so 
like when I talk about those 10 years in Seattle, I, I might say I was wandering through a spiritual desert or say something kind of flowery. Right. Um, but really in those times, it wasn't that I was deconstructing my belief in Jesus. It was that I was trying to figure out how to identify as a Christian in a city like Seattle where that can be complicated. So it was a little bit different for me. But when we talk about deconstruction, it's essentially someone either evolving or shifting uh, their faith or how they identify um, in terms of their Christianity. So maybe they were raised in a Christian home. They graduated from high school and at that point encountered college, diverse uh, ways of thinking about God, life, and the world. Um, and then they're, they're like, what is, what, what is my faith? What do I really believe? Or um, maybe they had a crisis. Uh, something happened that disrupted their, their way that they viewed God uh, and the world. Maybe their God was in control of everything and never let anything bad happen. And then yeah. crisis happened. And so sometimes people don't... Um, they, they don't go through that tunnel of chaos and emerge the same. Uh, sometimes they would emerge in ways that, that we would say, yeah, they, they really aren't even following Jesus anymore. But the, the hope would be, and I think part of the conversation for us would be, um, we're seeing a generation that is looking at church life, is looking at the church in North America, is looking at um, the way that the church has um, intermingled and um, has um, aligned itself in many ways with political voices. And they have concerns about that. They have questions about that. Not all of them. You know, obviously for some, it's just like, yep, this is my faith. This is what I believe. And therefore this is how I vote. Um, But there's also a whole part of that generation that's looking at the whole scene and going like, this isn't what it really means to, to follow. I'm having a problem reconciling what Jesus looks like with what the church uh, looks like. And, and so that deconstruction is is happening. We need a better way forward, right? So what are we what are you seeing um, as pertains to all of that? Yeah, I mean, it's that's such a good point. It seems like there's certainly a political component. Um, also, when we look at what's happening in the broader church with uh, with church scandals, with abuse, um, yeah. with celebrity pastors, with the way that. Some churches feel more like a marketplace than a place to worship Jesus. There's so many layers. And so um, I'm I'm feeling like in a way, I mean, the work that I'm the work that I'm doing when I say orphaned believer, I essentially mean a Christian looking around at the kind of broader American church and wondering where Jesus is. Now, I don't mean that on a congregational level. For example, the church that I've been at for 18 years, I think that we're a bunch of people that are trying, um, that are broken, that are moving forward together. We're a group of people we might not have chosen. And I love that about church. I love that I'm with, I spend life with people that I wouldn't have chosen and I end up loving. You know, I think that on a congregational level, there are many beautiful churches doing the quiet work of loving each other and and flourishing in Jesus all over the country. But I also know that on a broader scale, um, the cultural and political forces of, of, of America have, have inflicted some kind of sickness on, on the church as a whole. And that's what I'm, I'm concerned about. And so I think some folks who might say they're deconstructing are looking at those very forces and thinking something is wrong because I wanna follow Jesus. I wanna follow this person that lived a radically beautiful life 
that I feel drawn to, but I look around at the church and I don't see a home for myself. And so I might be politically orphaned. I might be culturally orphaned. Maybe my faith feels different than my parents. And so I feel some kind of estrangement from my family or for someone like me that lives in Seattle, there's often times when I'm the only Christian in the room. I mean, I live in a city where if you go to church, it's probably not by accident. Um, there's certainly not a lot of cultural Christianity here, um, but where I grew up in the Midwest in Indiana, there was certainly cultural Christianity, but I sometimes wondered why my faith wasn't fed or why I wasn't experiencing spiritual formation. Um, and so it was a very different dynamic. So I kind of grew up in a cultural Christian place where I didn't necessarily find my faith was flourishing. And I moved to a place where there was not, there, where it's not an accidental thing to be a Christian, um, where it's beautiful and you should look out the window. It's like, it's lovely. And I can see downtown Seattle from our window up here, just a little speck of a city. I'm like, I love this place and I pray for its flourishing, but it's a hard place to identify as a Christian. And so it's, it's kind of like, very geographical. So I'm really interested in that dynamic. I'm so, kind of all over the place, Tommy, but no, I have so, so growing up in the Midwest, you know, you, you, you pass five churches in, in, in route to the circle K and it's just in the water. Now you're in Seattle and does, does exile get close to um, describing that experience uh, for you at all or, or not? Yeah, it does. You know, that's a word that I really resonate with. Um, in the Midwest growing up, the way that I was raised, we went to the mall on Saturday and then we went to church on Sunday. You know, like it was a, we were consumers, we were Americans, we were single issue voters, we had certain political allegiances, we were interested in the Christian subculture. It just, it, it, I didn't feel like there was a lot of formation. So here in Seattle, the word exile does, does re I respond to it because I do feel like there's an intentionality. Um, when I started to write and talk about faith and culture and my life as a Christian in 2018 publicly, um, it was pretty scary because I thought for sure uh, that I would be kind of ghosted by folks here. Um, I had a lot of fear to overcome. And I think that's because if we're not careful, the flip side of relating to the word exile can make us feel kind of like there's a certain sense of exceptionalism that can come or cloistering or kind of fear-based wanting to be removed. So, so much of my life is about how do I identify as a person here that does feel like my life is a little different because I love Jesus and I'm working to center my life around Jesus, but not in a way that makes me defensive or afraid to, to engage and, and love this place. And yeah. so that's a real palpable tension that, that I have here. So I, I hope you're picking up a little bit of the thread, the thread of her life. Being in a place where it's very accepted to be a Christian, it's, a, it's in the culture, it's, it's a little bit Mayberry, you know, it's American as apple pie and Jesus and the American flag and all. Goes to Seattle and here you are in an intentional living community, you're, it's, it's not predominantly Christian and you're, you're, you're charting your way forward and that pressure is forcing you to grapple with your own faith and to yeah. take responsibility for your own faith. So Sarah, right. it, it, talk to us as a, as a person who's thinking about cultural trends and church trends. And um, yeah. is, is there a problem? Like, are people actually leaving? Uh, it, is the, what, what's the issue that, that is happening right now as pertains to Christianity? Because around here, like, it seems like everything's good. 
right? I mean, sure, there are some people that, but most people around here, they're going to go to church somewhere. Many people, I would say, right? Yeah. Even the, even, I mean, I just got my hair cut an hour ago, right? Two of the people in there, they hadn't found a church yet, but they were looking for a church, right? So is that, are you seeing that across the board? Are, are young people moving away? What, what's going on in, um, in the landscape? I mean, Tommy, I'm totally, I'm totally fascinated. Like I know we live in the same country, but I like how, I can't imagine how it would be to not sense that because that, that dynamic is such a palpable part of my life, but it's like so interesting to me. I'm so compelled. Um, but yeah, the, way that I talk about even my church, my home church, uh, is that we've experienced a kind of pressing where we, we follow Orthodox, we follow Orthodox Christian teachings on sexual ethics. Uh, it's a place where we follow liturgy. We say the creeds. Um, I'd say that our expression of faith is pretty historic. Um, the, the thing I would always tell friends about grace is, oh, grace is this place where you know, folks on the left and right can come together. Folks that have more progressive or conservative beliefs about political or social issues can come together on Sunday and meet in the middle. But it, it has significantly changed uh, since 2016 and during the pandemic where I just talk about this pressing where it seems like we've lost folks that are more progressive and more conservative that have different ideas about roles of women or sexuality. I mean, there are these hot button issues and it's like we, we've become this kind of condensed and smaller congregation um, in a way that's kind of beautiful because we begin to use this idea of building, building uh, wells and not fences, which I think is kind of like an old parable from some Irish farmer, like a cattle farmer or something. But the idea of um, building wells, living our life where we want to show people that Jesus changes everything. Um, Jesus transforms us. And this is how we, we live modeled around that. Like we long to be transformed by the Holy Spirit. Um, wanting that to be something that draws people in as opposed to as a church trying to build a fence to kind of keep them in. <laughs> um, because that doesn't feel good or generative for anybody. Yeah. And we believe that if Jesus loves people, which he does, then Jesus will draw pe people to him. So we are active and prayerful for our city and our congregation, but we also bless people and approach, approach our church with a kind of spaciousness yeah. um, and trust God with it. Yeah. Yeah. Are you, are you in the research that you've done both for your book? And I want to talk about that in a minute, but just in general, more people going to church these days than not is the younger generation by and large going to church, you know, let's say 18 to 30 year olds, or are we seeing a decline across the country? What are we seeing just yeah. at a broad yeah, level? Yeah, no, there's, I, you know, I'm trying to, to remember some of the statistics, but certainly at least in the Pacific Northwest, where there's a lot of nuns, folks that don't identify with, with any religion, that doesn't mean that a nun isn't spiritual because, but they don't identify with the religion or attend church. It, right. The number is very high, but I just, when you're, your question, I mean, yes, I think there are certainly less young people going to church, but I think that Gen Z in general is like highly spiritual. You know, I go to like the trendy jeans store at our outdoor mall and I can buy like tarot cards at Madewell or um, at, in Seattle, there's something called dance church on Sundays where it's kind of like this alternative, this kind of worshipful kind of like exercise class that's mm -hmm crazy popular yeah. and and kind of like a ritual for people yeah. and i have i mean that seems like a really joyful fun thing but there's many kind of swaps for church okay here and i think that's very attractive to young people so and as, was, a, as a mid-40 something i can officially say young people 
helpful because I think I'm <laughs> I'm officially middle aged. But anyways, <laughs> so uh, it, it was Nietzsche, I believe, who who said God is dead, right? But the, yeah. the the rest of that line, as you know, has something to say about God is dead and more or less, we've got to be uh, aware of what we put in his place. And so it isn't just mm-hmm. that God is dead, it's that when, when God is dead, which, you know, in that culture, by and large, it was like, uh, in, 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 that, in that framework of rejection or a transcending or we've moved beyond, you know, this old Bible, this old dusty book, this old way. But Nietzsche was saying God is dead and... Um, what, what do we put in the place of God, right? So he was an ardent critic of Christianity, but he was also a very um, astute person to be able to look at it and go, yeah, you can take away God, but you're going to have to put something in its place. Like, what do you put in the place of God if God is dead, right? My word's not his, but more or less the same point. What's the thing on the other side of the thing? So if we're seeing uh, people swapping out you know, church attendance, they're going to go to the, to the yoga class. They're swapping, not that yoga's bad, but you get the point. You were talking about things that we put in the place of. They may identify as spiritual, but not religious. You talked about the rise of the nuns, and let me just spell that for us, N-O-N-E-S. So not nuns, uh, like with a habit, but... Um, Good clarification. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So nuns as in, you know, they don't have any particular, you know, creed that they would affirm other than, you know, my truth is, is truth, maybe. Um, what's, what's the thing on the other side of the thing that these orphan believers, as you call them, who are looking at the thing going, I, I want to follow Jesus. I want to, what are, what hope is there? What, what can we say to them, uh, about, Hey, here's, here's a way forward into the future. Yeah. I mean, I, I guess that makes me want to talk about the three things that very much influenced my experience coming up as a a young Christian. Uh, You know, I grew up in the 80s and 90s with parents that are in the boomer generation. My dad got saved in the 70s reading Hal Lindsey's Late Great Planet Earth. Um, And so I grew up hearing um, a, a lot of conversation around the rapture and Jesus coming again. But the way that that was presented to me put a lot of fear in me because I was um, was told that I probably wouldn't, you know, be married or have a career, have a family before the rapture. And so our whole family was kind of um, our our life as Christians was kind of based around this this fear. Um, There was a thrill about it because maybe it would would happen and I would get to experience it. But it was also scary. But I think that those end times threads can kind of be seen in Christian nationalism and some other pieces today. Um, and then there's also this idea of, of uh, culture wars. I grew up really hearing a lot about certain music that I shouldn't listen to or things that were possibly going to be harmful to my faith. Um, but that I wasn't raised with a lot of formation. Um, I wasn't raised with a focus on prayer or a focus on listening to God or spaciousness for spiritual growth. And I also was raised with a lot of, um, in a consumerist culture and era, you know, we watched um, TJF on Friday nights and, <laughs> and had Domino's pizza. Like our life really did look like any other family's life, except we went to church on Sunday. And so I think that for folks like me that maybe would say they're deconstructing now or going through a time of, of changing faith and are looking around and not seeing where Jesus is. I, I think the thing that gives me hope is that Jesus calls us to a formation where, um, where our faith can begin to flourish. Like we can, we can learn about spiritual practices um, like listening prayer 
um, that can be really beautiful in a way to really get in touch with the spirit. And really, we can just read the Bible. <laughs> we can read the Psalms. Right. You know, I'm in a program right now at Western Seminary that we've talked about called The Sacred Art of Writing at the Eugene Peterson Center for the Christian Imagination, which is such a long title. But it really is a an homage to Peterson's work, especially with the Psalms. So just reading the Bible more. Like I do have, I do have hope that those practices can begin to draw folks back in and kind of re- reignite a little bit of what maybe has been kind of quenched. You know, I think that we've, I, I love what you said here. I think one of the things that I've seen us do is to reduce the gospel and to reduce following Jesus to a decision that is made in the event that the rapture might happen so as to avoid eternal conscious torment in hell, right? So even in a conversation that I had earlier today, um, I never know who's gonna be listening to this afterwards, so I won't won't give any more descriptors than that. The person said, uh, Jesus loves me just, just like I am. And, I, and I, I said, great. I said, yep, absolutely. I, actually, what I said was, how do you know? That's what I said, first of all. I said, how do you know Jesus loves you, right? She's like, well, Jesus loves me. I said, great, okay. Um, the, 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 the sentiment behind that, and as a conversation ensued, was I've made a decision, therefore Jesus loves me. And yet the person doesn't go to church, which fine. Maybe the person is looking for a church. Maybe the person is, as you say, deconstructing, maybe whatever it might be, right? I think if I were to be able to have a good conversation with that person, I would say, I don't really care about the decision that you made. Let's talk about your soul. Let's mm-hmm. talk about how, are you, are you hurried in life? Do you have peace? Um, do you find yourself just skipping from one thing to the next? Do you, do you find that you're you're, you're, you're really just grappling uh, your way through. And that's an, that to me is the place where and an invitation to follow the ways and means and teachings and practices of so Jesus yeah. is so compelling and beautiful and provocative. Whereas this idea that, and I, I think that the church is full of crap on this, I, that you pray a prayer and go to heaven. Dear God, they didn't invent the altar call until like the second great awakening. It's a total load. Jesus never said, pray a prayer and go to heaven. Jesus said, follow me, (laughs) follow me. I'm not saying that pray a prayer isn't important. I am saying that praying a prayer is an invitation to a journey. And what we've reduced it to is a decision to be teleported to a preferred reality after you die and to hell with whatever is happening on this side of eternity. Because God's going to nuke the whole place anyhow in the late great planet Earth. Yeah, I mean, it's so funny, Tommy, like as you were talking, like I, I completely totally agree and I can feel an old thing in me kind of like from childhood remembering laying in bed every night when I was eight or nine asking Jesus into my heart just in case just in just case. in case that time didn't catch and I know that many people have done that or do that because I was told that what matters is the is the sinner's prayer that's right. and that's it's like if you're good then the rest will kind of figure out later that's right <laughs> and, yeah. uh, and that's, so it's just like, it's such an old part of me that even as a person in my forties, I can still feel a little bit of that kind of young, young feeling to yeah. be invited to say the prayer and what happens if I don't do it right. 
That's or I right. miss it, or I'm not totally covered, or could I lose my salvation? It was really scary to come up like yeah. that. So, amen. So, sniffing out that thing, I, I think that culture has done a good job of sniffing out the fact that that's like, what are you selling me here? Pray yeah. a prayer, go to heaven. What, what about tomorrow at nine a.m.? Like how? I can get more spiritual formation doing yoga than I can in the church. Yeah. I can That's get right. I can get more at the local what's the shop at the Destin Commons that the girls love shopping at, whatever that's called, that has the tarot cards and the cool posters and yes, earthbound. Maybe they don't have tarot cards. There's more spirituality happening in that place than in most churches on Sunday morning. Yeah. Because what we're trying to convince people to do is to ascribe to a certain ideal so that they cannot spend eternity in hell. It's just yeah. not the, the invitation. Anyhow, so that's the first thing. So you're seeing that a returning to actually actual spiritual formation, walking with people, helping them take responsibility for their own personal spiritual development by drawing on ancient Orthodox teachings that the church has handed down to us, but we've forsaken in a marketing attempt to get people to go to another place someday. Is that? Yep. Okay. That's right. What's the second one? What's after that? You know, there's that famous Annie Dillard quote, how we spend our days is how we spend our lives. And anyone that has read Tish Harrison Warren's, what is it, Ministry of the Ordinary, knows this is not a new idea. But when I think about my own, my own life, I think about how the choices I make every day, the small little choices, uh, impact how I relate to God. And I was just, just thinking about Instagram, for example, or social media. The way that my heart is tilted towards um, the way that I so quickly have my attention drawn to my phone, or if there's a moment where I could take a minute to pray or to just sort of focus on God or look around instead, I'm like looking and scrolling is, a, is a real problem. Okay. So what has been really big for me is making sure that I set good boundaries for myself, or at least try to, um, in a way that I can model that for my kids. Mm-hmm. So I guess, I guess the second thing I would, I would say is like thinking about, and not, not everyone is a parent or chooses to be or is able to be. And I acknowledge that, um, especially after Mother's Day, but I, I do think that a big piece for me is thinking about the way that my everyday choices and daily rhythms and practices are modeling to my kids and other people in my life, um, the kind of fruit of, of whatever might be going on in my spirit. Cause I think it's a mirror back into what's going on with us, how we make daily choices and little decisions. So that, you know, social media is just one example, but that's a big one. So what does that have to do with, and I know it has something to do with, but I want to point at it. What does that have to do with orphaned believers? Yeah. Well, I mean, orphaned believers are folks that are looking around the church asking where Jesus is, but I think it's also people that are looking at each other, people that are fellow Christians or came up in the church and thinking like, I don't understand what being a Christian means if, if I don't sort of see the fruit of that. So that's kind of where mm. my mind is going. It's kind of how we reflect each other back to each other in that way. Um, yeah. So yeah, that's a really, that's been a really big one for me. And that the other, the other thing that's been big is thinking about the global church, thinking about the global South, just trying to have a perspective of what's happening in America right now that may feel broken, the way that politics and the church are sometimes quite close together, the way that consumerism and a lot of broken celebrity stuff has happened in the church, but trying to compare that to what Jesus is doing in Africa and in South America and in other parts of the world has been really encouraging to me. It gives me more context. You know, when we stand, we stand in line to take communion at Grace and we do that 
uh, every Sunday. And it's this beautiful image to me, not just of the people I'm with, but all the people that have come before us in the faith and all the people that will come after us. And so there really is something beautiful in that imagery and knowing that we're part of the history of the church and that's beautiful. And uh, in knowing that all around the world, even if America is going through a time of difficulty, the church is still flourishing, also brings some, some comfort. So if I, if I go back, it, for people who are hungry, they're looking for a way home, that yeah. an invitation to practice the ways of Jesus, to, to live as he lived, to walk as he walked, to pursue, as Eugene taught us, the unforced rhythms of grace, mm-hmm. that there's something seductive about. I remember my church history professor, he said, and this guy knows church history, like he said, the best chance the church has is to return to focus on Jesus. And I thought, boy, that seems obvious. Seems yeah. obvious. Like to actually focus, like not on all of our doctrines, but on Jesus, like the ways of Jesus. I've never met anybody who didn't like Jesus. I've literally never met anyone who didn't like Jesus. Like, totally. Jesus yeah. is doing really well right now. Like yeah. a, a brown-skinned refugee yeah. that was a, that sort of stood against political forces and, and kind of like overt um, sort of organized religion. I mean, Jesus is kind of like the best right now culturally, yeah. <laughs> which, is, which is very, unfortunately, it's his church that's taking a hit. Um, which is why those of us that have hearts burning for change, those of us that see the beauty of Christ's church, and it's what Christ left us with. That's yeah. why those of us that want to see reform yeah. are, are the very ones, if we can, that should stay. Yeah. Like stay in the church and work to make that happen. Absolutely. And one of the, I told you this before, one of the things I appreciated about you is a lot of people with, that are focusing on the types of issues that you're focusing on are very bitter they, they tend to be very angry. They tend to have an edge. And you and I have talked about this before. The, the prophets always had swords in their mouths, but they had tears in their hearts. They, 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 they're, they're piercing. They speak the truth, but they do it from a place of meekness and, and brokenness. And so we, we need your voice out there and we need people who will stand in the middle of it and we'll say, hey, follow, let's, let's return to Jesus. Let's not worry about the right or the left. Let's, let's follow the way of Jesus and see what happens. I do want to ask this question. Go ahead, please. What were you going to say? I was just saying thank you. That was very kind. Oh, well, you're, <laughs> I think you're <laughs> great. You so um, I, I do, um, so we're, we're in Niceville, Florida, okay? It's, it's great. It's the safest city in Florida. Did y'all know that? I don't know what criteria you use for that, but this is a great place. Um, crime, per capita. crime per capita, all right? Uh, nine out of 10 people voted for Trump, okay? It might've been 9.5 out of 10, I'm not sure. Um, and I'm not gonna tell you who I voted for because it doesn't matter. I know you well enough to know you're not about to blow up the room, but I do wanna ask you a question. I wanna ask you a question because you wrote a New York Times article and you've also been that kind of went, right? And you've, you've also been very vocal about some of your concerns about what you saw related to the church during that era. And I'm sure that you also have concerns about the church and even now politically. So it's not just a, a red thing. Yeah. Talk to us about what you've seen that, that is concerning you because you have a completely different perspective than what we have right here. Shepherd yeah, us in that a little bit. 
Well, I could talk about this all day, Tommy, but I'll, I'll keep it, I'll keep it brief. I mean, you know, I, I turned 18 and that, that morning, my dad took me to the Republican headquarters in Elling County in Fort Wayne, Indiana and registered me as a card carrying Republican. And then we like went out to eat. So it was sort of like part of my 18th birthday. So, <laughs> <laughs> so um, I, I certainly identified as specifically as a Republican because that's what I thought Christians were supposed to do um, for, for a long time. Um, I think we often say the church shouldn't be political, but really I think that we're all political all the time. I think how vocal we are aren't. Um, if we, even if we're not engaging, that sort of says something. It's a really, it's a really interesting era. Um, but in my opinion, the church has values, specific values to promote to society at large, but we have to be careful to not be co-opted by any political party, you know, by Republicans or Democrats or anything else. And that's hard to do. But I think that that the church has good words to speak in to sort of all political parties. Um, and I think that the bedrock of the like biblical political ethic should be to speak out for the marginalized and vulnerable and to promote human flourishing, you know, and, and to think about what policies might do that, you know, but I also want to acknowledge, I don't know anybody. I do not know any friend who has not experienced a division in their family, any Christian friend who has not experienced a broken relationship or division in their family or in the church they grew up in or with a former pastor or youth group leader. Yeah. I mean, everybody, everybody is broken. We're all feeling, many of us are feeling pain. Um, many of us are feeling relational fractures because of these issues, because of political differences. Um, it's so charged. Yeah. And so sometimes I think it's easier to just kind of want to lift our hands and and just kind of back up or just kind of opt out. So it's it's complicated. But I think these issues are important because... It'll be an election again before we know it. Yeah, yeah. We, whether we like it or not. Yeah, yeah. When when Jesus gets um, draped with the American flag, the the yeah. church loses its voice. That we don't have the ability to stand at a different because when we so closely align with any political leader or any political party, that political leader becomes a representative of the faith. And since 354, that's been a problem for the church. Mm -hmm. Since Constantine made Christianity the official religion, 354, 45, whatever it is, made it the official religion of the known world, the church lost its prophetic voice. And then the, the, the hermits, the monks, whoever you want to call it, they fled into the desert because the church had become so corrupt. And so they had to speak from the desert into the center of political power. So we, and we, I, I've gone on ad nauseum if you've been in any of my small groups about this, but one of the things that the church can do is to say, the church is neither Republican nor Democrat. That if I disagree with you politically, I can still be a brother and sister in Christ with you, right? If you can't find good things to say about Donald Trump, you're not looking hard enough. And I would say you're biased. If you can't find things to criticize about his policy or him, I would say the same thing about Joe Biden. The left can be just as fundamentalist and conservative about their own ideals as what the right can about theirs. And so what mm -hmm. we want to do is to follow the way of Jesus, whether we're Republican or Democrat or wherever we are, and um, not, as they say, get in bed with uh, 
with uh, any particular political party in that way. Our allegiance is to the kingdom of God, not to the American flag. We, we support the American flag. We have men and women who fight and die for the American flag in this room, but our first allegiance is to uh, the cross of Christ and to following him. And I, I, know that we, I know we believe that in this room. So Sarah, you said the, the first one for orphan believers that a returning, to the, a returning to practicing the ways of Jesus. You said the second one is the way that I, even in social media, right down to how I, how I relate to my phone, how, how I go about my daily life, the way I handle myself, that there's something winsome and, and, try, and people are looking for, um, looking for a better way to live. Was it Dallas Willard that said, uh, hurry is the great enemy of the spiritual life. And so that if we follow the ways of Jesus, we ought to be different in the yeah. way that we do everything that we do. What's, what's a third way that, um, that we can see orphaned believers looking at the church and going, you know what, there's something about that that I want. Yeah, I think that, I think what we can do is, I talked about how those of us burning with hearts to change the church, like that the church needs us, but um, we also need the church. And so I think that, and I, you know, Tommy, Acknowledging the beginning of this conversation, how in terms of geography, at least, we're kind of in different places. Um, the idea of choosing to find a group of people, whatever that looks like, whether that's two or three gathered or a congregation with its own building or, or whatever that means, choosing to um, choosing to submit to the authority of the church, to think about what that means for us, to think about not being kind of in control of the person, maybe not making all of our own choices. Like mm. we're used to customizing yeah. iPhone, color. I've got rose gold. Like I'm used to being in control of what yeah. I choose and to being able to buy what feels what feels like yeah. me. But the idea of limiting ourselves, of submitting ourselves to a body of people, assuming that's a safe place, a place with people that love Jesus, um, is so uncomfortable, but it's totally transformational. And mm-hmm. so that for me is really the the third piece. Yeah, I the there's um, a thought that comes to me like there, it, there's a certain level of humility that I think is required even out of people who are deconstructing or have left the church. A certain amount of humility that says, you know, I'm not going to make this up on my own. I'm going to submit myself to spiritual authority, to, and that can be abused, but to, I'm, I'm, I'm going to become a part of a body of believers that are drawing on an ancient tradition so that I'm not just making this stuff up as I go. Like I should not readily reject tradition because I don't have the wisdom or longevity of life to be able to gain enough wisdom to create something better. Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes, sometimes that might mean, that might mean taking a break. I mean, and again, I've said it and you said it. Sometimes people find themselves in, in situations where churches are not healthy or they're not safe, or there is spiritual abuse. That's certainly not what I'm saying. But if you are able to find even two or three people to commit to and to to being church together, uh, there's just something so beautiful that comes in the limitation of sort of submitting yourself to a group that I, I think is distinctly a Christian experience and really a way the Holy Spirit can meet us differently than we than maybe if we're praying on our own or, or on our own. Um, but yeah, that doesn't mean that there's not a time. Honestly, I think five years ago, if somebody would have said, I'm going to take a break from church for a while, I would have felt a lot of fear about that. If my kid, I have a 12 year old, if my kid says, mom, I don't want to go to church for a while, um, 
that would feel very scary to me. Probably, well, probably now it would too. I'm, I'm being really honest, but yeah. I also know that my husband, when he was 14, had a few years where he stopped praying and didn't believe in God. He had four years and it ended up being a, a beautiful way that Jesus met him in the end of that time. So that's where we come in with prayer and with like full hope and belief that God can meet us. So I feel less afraid of that right now, yeah. but I do think it's important that a break or, or being in between churches or whatever is done with intention and that there's a healthy sort of spiritual practice at home if that's, if that's where we are. So you could then almost in your role become a spiritual guide or a director for those people who are in the space between rather than harping at them and railing at them and saying, get your butt in church on Sunday morning or the devil's gonna pick you off. What you would say to them is, okay, let's, let's take your time, but, but let's also be intentional about this and not be lazy about this and not just replace the things that you don't like about the church with some other unhealthy routines in your own life. Totally. Yeah. yeah, I would say that then our role would be to pray for that person and and to maybe recommend spiritual direction, which yeah. is really just companionship with a trained with a trained person that can walk us through guided prayer or think about going on a retreat at a monastic retreat center. I mean, there's many things that folks yeah. can do yeah. in that invitation. I'm, I get most concerned whenever people check out of church and they just shut their walls off to the people as well. They shut, they yeah. put walls up for that. It's like, no, let's, okay, you're, you're, you're sick of church right now. You're offended, whatever it is. Let's not give, let's not, let's not stop paying attention to the fact that you are a person with a deeply spiritual core of who you are, who needs a relationship with the divine. Let me walk mm-hmm. with you and help you rather than railing against them. Let's pray for them. Let's walk with them. Well, I, I bet there are some questions out, out in the room and I wanna get to those. But Sarah, while, uh, while they're coming up with their questions, I would love it. Tell us about the book that you're working on uh, right now. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, sure. Uh, it's called, so the book's called Orphans Believers. It comes out from Baker, January 26th, 2023. <laughs> but who knows, but who's, who's tracking that date? Um, and it's my, my first book and it, it looks at... Uh, how a generation of Christian exiles can find their way home. Mm-hmm. So there's that word exile, Tommy. Um, and the the book really uh, is a story of folks like me who came up in the 80s and 90s in evangelicalism and experienced uh, an, end, an end times culture, um, who experienced a lot of culture wars uh, and also consumerism. Looks those kind of three pieces to figure out what happened and then where we go from here. So it's important to me that the book uh, is in any way that it can be a call, a call back to Jesus. Um, so we, it's important in my work to pick, to pick out what went wrong, to bring everything to the light, to surface what's wrong, um, not to tear it down, but to say, we're all really broken and this is complicated, but how do we move back towards Jesus? What's compelling still about Jesus after everything that's happened? So that's, that's the work. Beautiful. I can't wait for it. uh, January of 2023. So it's practically yeah. here. I, I want to ask you a question and just by show of hands, okay? Um, and I want you to be honest. How many of you would say you know a person of whatever age that you would consider to be an orphaned believer based on the conversation that we've had tonight? Could I see your hand? So more than half of the room knows a person, knows a person like that. Um, yeah. I, I wonder if there's a question for Sarah. Anybody? I don't have it. Hey, Jora, why don't you come, come right here. Come right here and talk to her. I don't have my phone. Mm. 
Oh, the mic's right here. Well, just come right here by me then. This is going to be great. This is our friend Jora. Hey, Jora. Hi. Hi. Um, outside of just being a gentle guide to make sure people remain intentional in their spiritual lives, even if they aren't wanting to associate with what they think Jesus is, is there anything else we can do to sort of help people along the way in their decision-making every day? Yeah. Is this like a, are you thinking of a specific friend or person that's kind of going through a, a difficult season I've got without multiple, asking anything specific? I've got multiple people who have been through rough churches that were very Americanized as opposed yeah. to actually giving an idea of what Jesus is and actually stands for. Yeah. Um, there, there are um, various, I'm thinking of various resources. Um, you know, it's interesting because I think sometimes people are receptive to receiving a book or a podcast recommendation and sometimes they're not. But I, I do think that um, there could be resources that help. I mean, I think that also hearing each other's stories can be good. Um, social media for all of its ills does sometimes have really lovely groups of people that are supporting each other um, in, in healthy ways. I know that oftentimes it's vitriolic, but not always. So there could be some kind of group that they could join. But honestly, I think that for when I think about my friends in those situations, I think of two things. One, like to normalize doubt and to normalize times of feeling like you were flailing a little bit and to expect it. So I would talk to I would talk to my friend about an, my, a time in my own life where some things happened that's been challenging. Or I would just say, you know, anger, fear, doubt, whatever you're feeling, like Jesus can take it and and take the time that you need. Um, and then I would also just commit to praying for those people. I mean, Drew, my husband Drew had been praying for his friend Chris every most days for seven years um, until she finally came back came back around. Like we're committing to praying for people for a long time and. Mm. God willing, if life is long, we hope that that eventually they, they will turn around and come back. And honestly, my deepest longing for many of my friends, um, even friends that when I moved out to Seattle have, have since left the church, is that they'll come back. Um, so I have full hope through prayer that that will happen one day. Yeah. Beautiful. Thank you. Nice you to know, meet you. You know, a question that comes to mind that I, I love to put out there is, what is it about Jesus that turns you off? Whoa. Yeah, let's is think that about that. Okay? Huh? <laughs> is I, that question okay? I'm just kidding. I said turns I'm you off, thinking. not <laughs> make sure you heard the question right. No, what I did. No, I mean, yeah. shouldn't we love everything about Jesus? Like um uh I, I'm thinking to like a, a friend that's that's gone beyond the, the church, you know, to say to them, What wow. is it about Jesus that you're struggling with? Yeah, I mean, it's almost certain that the person will have nothing, nothing. to say. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> or if they do, it's not actually based on the teachings of Jesus or the life of Jesus. That's right. It's almost always, it's almost always everyone else around that messes things up. <laughs> that's right. Jesus needs better PR, right? Yeah, uh, that's right. There are actually a few walking billboards in the room. That's a, I hate that metaphor, but there, there are people in the room that I'm like, yeah, she's actually Jesus. Just follow her as she follows Jesus, you'll be fine. And then there are other people you're like, ah, yeah. I'm not so sure. Um, sorry about that, Jesus. But he didn't seem to care. He just let people go on doing stupid crap in his name. And um, he's like, well, that, the real is still out there. You can find it if, if you want. You can still hear my voice if you want. What, another question. You got one? Hey, Laura. All right, Laura's making her way. Hi. Um, I'm Hi, Laura. From, hi. I'm from Minneapolis, and we talked a lot about like the 
the orphaned believer coming back and finding their way back home to church, right? How does it look for you after you've found that place home, entering back into this eclectic artist, um, philosophical world that Seattle is? I'm, I'm about to move back to Minneapolis, as you might know, which is full of skeptics and, you know, self-proclaimed philosophers and all sorts of spiritualists yeah totally um, and so so being a christian amongst them like do you do you limit yourself more um to try to stay strong in your walk do you find yourself wanting to disciple to them like to you know how, how does that look yeah that's such a that's such a good question um you know i spent the i've been here 17 years i spent the first 10 years hiding my light was like so far under a bowl that it was almost, you, you couldn't see it. Um, I, I really, I, I worked for a alt weekly. I edited a food blog. I worked for a art book publisher. I had like a very Seattle, like yeah. six day a week life and a, a Sunday life. Um, but it became, it got to the point where that uh, there was almost like a weight on me. I felt like I was walking around with like a, like a bag hanging on my shoulder. I just, I couldn't handle like managing two identities. Um, and then I finally started to talk to people about it and they were so gracious and lovely. I had this fear that like uh, Mark from the art book publisher would learn I was Christian and wouldn't be able to believe it and would, would wake up the next morning and still not believe it. Like Mark didn't care. Mark's really lovely and said, I, I didn't know that about you. Let me know more. So I, so if I could go back, if I could land again, I would have been cards face up from the beginning because I would have given people the benefit of the doubt to realize people are often gracious and lovely to people that may have different beliefs than them. Um, it just took me a long time to figure it out. Yeah. So that's the first thing that comes to mind. But I don't, I, I tend to, I, I don't tend to, to sort of be mindful of, I mean, I, I'm, I, if I can sense in my spirit that a space doesn't feel healthy or there's just like something that feels off, then I, I don't really engage. But otherwise, I just really love being here and have also the, the last thing I would say is that I've chosen to pray for for the city. I just um, it took me a while to figure that out, and then a few years ago, I thought I want to pray actively for the flourishing of this place, and I I think that really I think prayer helps. Yeah. So yeah. bless you as you move. Thank that sounds really exciting. Okay. Thank you. It's, it's something. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't get the sense she's excited. I'm sure um, it's bittersweet. Another question. Luke, did you have something? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, come on up here. All right. You got to come on up. This is my friend Luke. That's all you need to know. Yeah, that's it. Hey, Sarah. Hey. Um, so, okay. So, I think what's helpful, especially uh, for us, so for some of us that might not know. So, okay, number one, I'm, so I'm the young adults pastor here. I was a youth pastor here. I do, I've read so much, especially the numbers of like, our Gen Z and our people who are emerging adults that are leaving the church in absolute droves. And, um, but what I thought was really, really interesting, I'm sorry, this is a long-winded question, but I'm going to, I'm going to go for it. So you talked about the nuns, you know, the book that was written, the nuns by Ryan, Ryan Bird. Yes. He's a political scientist. He wrote all about the, if you want to learn more about it, go buy the book. It's called the nuns. But one of the things he, I heard him on a podcast literally just yesterday, and he said the number that they're seeing now is 
only 10% of America doesn't believe in God or a higher power. That there's 90% of the people that believe in God or a higher power, but people are leaving the church in absolute droves. So that's a big question. I want to narrow it down. One of the things, and we talked about it just here a minute ago, was some of the political stuff that has actually driven a lot of younger people out of the church. So how can we heal? How can we be intentional in healing the divides that are there? I think it's hard for us to see that because we live in a very homogenous um, uh, area where we don't have a lot of political diversity in our city. So people may not see that, especially in a city where like you are, um, yeah. where, um, but I'm from Birmingham and the number of people who are Democratic, vote Democrat is a lot larger. So the churches up there are having to think, well, how do we heal it? So how do we heal some of that divides to, and then and to, to proceed to get these people back into church that, you know, want that they yeah. want that spiritual engagement. They want that, that spiritual growth. Yeah. Yeah. That's like an epic, that's like a second book question. Sure. I'm going to have to go yeah. watch this again. I'm like, that's like an outline. Yeah. I think that might be your book though. Cause that's no. pretty, that's pretty compelling. Seriously. That's awesome. I mean, uh, so this is kind of, this might feel a little surprising or this might not be where, where you would imagine I would go. But, uh, I think that, I think that the church may continue to be severed. I think that denominations may continue to split. I think that things might get worse before they get better. Um, But I know that there will always be a remnant of people that preserve the church, that love the church, and wherever the church is going in our lifetime— um, I think that part of my life's work is to is to work to preserve and reform the church from within. And so I think that those of us that see that and that are concerned about these issues are the ones that can help kind of for our kids and future generations preserve it. I mean, I sometimes think I might I might die and never see a revival or a restoration or kind of a big wave of change. I may never see people come back like I long for but that's, I don't need to see a God. I always say like, maybe my kids will see it. Like, I just think this might get worse before it gets better. And maybe I am hopeful or even stupidly hopeful that in the long run, it's going to be more beautiful and refined and flourishing. And then we'll be a beacon that draws people in. Um, so, I mean, I guess I could just, I think about this all the time and I wish I had a more positive, a more positive prediction or whatever, but that's kind of where I am if I'm really honest. Fair enough. (laughs) Sarah, there's, I have no way to prove this. Um, So I'm just going to, I'm going to say it confidently in hopes that people will believe me. Um, When I was a youth pastor, uh, the pastor before me, the youth pastor before me, uh, his name was Jay. And Jay said, Florida is five years behind Atlanta and 10 years behind California. So if you want to know the future, look there, northeast, and then look left. Hmm. Not all of it, obviously, but a lot of it. So I, I was speaking to a group of youth pastors about needing to engage students in more... Um, experiential spiritual practices. This is 2004, five, three, four, something like that. 
I, I would have, I had tents set up inside of our youth room, like canopies, like you're outside, you're at a ball game. And one of them was a scripture reading one. One of them was a confession one. One of them was a prayer one. One of them was an art one. And they would go through, these are like young adult type people. They'd go through the various ones. And I, I remember at this youth pastor's conference um, that I was talking about this, that um, one of the people that was there came and talked to me about 10 years later. He said, I thought you were full of crap. He said, and I can't believe how necessary that type of thing is. And what I'm seeing right now in the more experiential nature of faith in, in, in young people. Not to say that I'm prescient or that I have an eye. I'm really bad at predicting the future and reading people's minds. But I don't know that we can see what's coming here. I don't know that we're prepared for what's coming down the line. I'm utterly hopeful. I'm not overly optimistic. I think that you're exactly right. I think that the rise of the nuns will only proliferate and the people returning to the ways and means of Jesus in the middle of that will only intensify because of the pressure that's going to be felt and because of the fact that we're going to have to, to put our whole hope in Jesus, not the church, we're gonna put our whole hope in Jesus, right? And gather together with yeah. people who put their whole hope in Jesus and follow him as closely as we can. I, I think that, I think Jesus is the best hope for the church. <laughs> so good. Yeah, I've been thinking a lot about holiness lately. I mean, there's a phase of deconstruction. Folks can't deconstruct forever. Reconstruction. People like Jesus, but not the church. <laughs> like, what does that really mean to, to like or follow Jesus? And I've been thinking about all holy really means is set apart. I think that I had an idea of holiness as a monk on pilgrimage or somebody that didn't have to work or could kind of be cloistered away. But what does practical, earthy, grounded, set-apartness look like? And how could that be like revolutionary for our own hearts and for the world looking in at the church? Uh, yeah. So that's just nothing but compelling to me these yeah. days. Well, you have, you have two children. They're six and 12. Did I get that right? Nine and 12. Nine and yep. 12. Okay. Um, how, how are you and Drew, like, not just intentionally parenting, but in, in the middle of all that, forming them as disciples? How are you going yeah. about that? You know, my dad uh, made some mistakes that he'll admit growing up with me when he was raising me. But he, he, he you know, the end times thing was a really big, really big piece of my childhood. There were some other, other pretty big mistakes that we've worked through as, as an adult with, with my dad. Um, but he always said we had a lot of love. And the most important thing to me, Sarah, was that you, that you love Jesus. And that you knew that we loved you. And I did. I did know that. And I, I, I did. I have loved Jesus through my life. So having kids um, with Drew and I, the most important thing to us, the thing that is essential in our life out of anything else, like many of you, I think, would relate to is raising up kids that love Jesus. Um, doing that now has become incredibly difficult. Um, looking around at at friends who have kids that are in many different places, um, spiritually and living life and making all sorts of different choices, uh, knowing how, how much we're up against um, has been profoundly painful, sometimes scary, um, very humbling. Um, I am totally dependent on God for, for my kids' souls. 
And so what we've decided to do besides praying fervently with them and trying to model family practices the best we can around Bible study and prayer is just to, to tell them you should expect for some of this to not feel believable. Um, it's okay to doubt. Doubt is not the opposite of faith. Let's normalize what it means to have questions. Let's talk about it. A couple of weeks ago, my son came to us before bed and said, I don't know if I can believe this. I don't know if it's true. So we said, let's talk about that. And God really met us in that time. We had a powerful prayer time where I really feel like he was able to kind of confess that in this sweet way. Um, so no parent really knows what they're doing. <laughs> We're all kind of looking at each other and figuring it out as we go through. Um, but be, this is a place in our life where we are fully dependent on Jesus. And, um, and it, it has so far been uh, true that the most important thing in our life is that Jesus, uh, and our kids love Jesus, but we are not building fences. We are building a well, like with intention to, to draw them in, in our life. Um, and the other thing I'd say is thinking about some friends who came up in a Christian home that are really amazing people with beautiful faith. I'd say like my friend, Josh, I said, what did your parents do? Like, tell me the secret. My mom would just get up and read the Bible every morning. And I just see her in the same chair in her pajamas praying or my friend, my friend, um, Matt, what is your, what about, what happened? He's like, nothing really. I mean, you know, my parents, we would just sometimes talk about the Bible and pray. Like there's not like a special thing they did. They modeled in their life. Like, am I on my phone or am I spending time in the mornings with, with God? So, mm. so yeah, yeah. there's a lot here. I've got a lot of, <laughs> a lot yeah. of feelings. No, I know you do. And you and I have talked about, uh, some of that uh, as well, just practically. You, doubts come up a couple of times. Yeah. And, you know, I, I would often get, being named Tommy Thomas, I would get, you know, why doubting Thomas? And I'm like, why did I get the disciple that doubted, right? Well, if you, if you, if you read, why couldn't I be Luke, you know, the physician, right? And um, if you read the scripture, all of the disciples doubted. Every one of them doubted. And when you get up underneath some of the language and really poor translations, Jesus doesn't say to Thomas, uh, don't doubt, just believe, as though those were two separate things. He literally says, keep moving from unbelief to belief. And that, I think, is the invitation. It's, it's not to, yeah. <laughs> like, bad doubt, full faith. If you don't have doubts in your faith, it's just because either one, you're not in a place in your life where Jesus has really pushed you out to the ledge, or number two, you're just not thinking. Um, and so it's, it's like you ought to have doubts. If you, <laughs> doubt's not the enemy. Doubt just means you still have questions. Yeah. And my children have questions. So if Jesus says, become like a little child, my kids are asking questions all the time. God, why'd you let that? Why, why this? Why that? Why this? Why that? that? Doubt is the invitation to follow Jesus closer. And to just lean in a little more and say, I don't know where this is going. I don't know why this is happening, but I'm going to follow. Um, Sarah, I've really enjoyed this conversation and I'm very grateful for the work that you're doing. Uh, you're, you're in a different part of the world than us. Your experience is different than ours. You see things that we don't see and we see things that you don't see. And I think it's fascinating that the body of Christ is, is so diverse and you're placed where you are for this season. And I can't wait 
Uh, I can't wait for January 2025 uh, to happen because I think it's going to be a good book that the world needs. I think it's important. Thank it's you. 20, no, that's the second book she's got coming out in 2025. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I meant 2023. I've got a Thank book you. coming this out sometime. I don't know. In 20, maybe it's 2025 is what I'm thinking about. Um, well, it's been fun. Any, uh, any parting Thanks comments for or questions for Sarah before we go? No? Are we good? Sarah, well, you. I'd be happy to correspond with anyone online or over email or or, or whatever yeah. if anything comes up. This how has been we, such a gift. How do we find you? Are, is your best follow on Instagram? Is that the best place? Yep, it's just my name, Sarah.Billups at Instagram. And then I have a, a newsletter called Bitter Scroll that comes out too that you can find there. <laughs> we can just go to your website and get all of that stuff. Cool. Yeah. All right, well... All the best to Drew and your family. And uh, we're, uh, it's getting dark outside. You still have twilight. So we'll talk to you later. Thank you. Very light here still. Thanks, everyone. Blessings. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to our podcast today. If you want more information about Generations United Church, head on over to genuchurch.com. Feel free to follow us on all of our social media platforms as well. Church, we love you. We're praying for you. Take care.